and welcome back to Real Clear with Dr. Klein, the crossroads of politics and psychology. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this next episode. And welcome back to Real Clear with Dr. Lucas Klein. I am, uh, I won't say happy to have Hank Capel on this morning because our topic is grim, but I'm grateful that you're joining us, Hank. Uh, Israel and the catastrophe that's happened this past weekend at the hands of Hamas. Can you bring us up to speed as to what's going on on the ground there? And then we can get into talking about the causes and geopolitical ramifications. Certainly, Lucas. And it's an honor to be here as always. Thanks for your good thoughts. It is a tragedy for folks in Israel, um, and it's a tragedy for the Middle East and the world in a way. The latest update I have comes from various sources, including the National Jewish Federations. It's understood now that Hamas, which is, uh, to put context, Gaza is in the southwest corner of Israel. It's a rectangular strip running north-south in that northwest corner. At the very top of that strip is one of several crossing points into and out of Israel, um, called the Erev Crossing. It's at that point that it's understood Hamas terrorists were able to break down the wall, uh, the separation barrier, bust a hole through enough for trucks and, and cars and uh, vehicles to get through. They made crossing at about 32 different points of entry, but Erev was the major one. As folks probably know from the news, the Hamas terrorists just marauded through southwestern Israel uh, running through towns, locking down entire towns, going house to house, shooting people. In many cases, they took families, put them in a room, and machine gunned them down. At times, they made them dig their own graves. These are literally, literally reminiscent of what happened in the Holocaust throughout Eastern Europe. Um, several rapes are now confirmed from the bodies found at the uh, rave concert in southwestern Israel in the desert, where hundreds were taken hostage. They believe to be dozens, if not a hundred or more hostages taken by Hamas. They include an 84-year-old grandmother, a four-year-old girl, a mother with the two daughters. They believe to be kept in the terror tunnels underneath the Gaza-Israel border. Um, so Israel has now declared war. They've made clear they're not going to do the usual policy, which is colloquially known as mowing the lawn. We'll fight back, we'll push enough, take out enough terrorist rocket installations to quiet things down for a year or two or three. I believe that the Netanyahu government, with the support of the country, is seeking to completely decapitate the Hamas leadership and their installations, their missile factories and depots, etc. Nobody knows how far this is going to go. Here's the latest news. You've probably seen this as well from the Wall Street Journal. It's now confirmed from certain sources deemed to be reliable that Iran did plan this in coordination with their proxy, who they often fund, Hamas. And that, in fact, since August of this year, the one of the leaders of the Iranian Quds Force, which is part of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, would meet in Beirut with the head of Hezbollah, the head of Hamas, and the head of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another group which is in Gaza. Hezbollah, as you know, is in the north and Lebanon and the Israeli northern border. And that they met weekly to plan this. And finally, Iran gave the green light about a week ago. And it was deliberately planned to be the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War surprise attack, 
Um, and it's also believed that this has a lot to do with uh, the increasing normalization between Israel and several Sunni Arab countries, particularly Saudi Arabia. We can get into all that as, as, you, as you wish. So um, in terms of the, the military response that is likely to come from the Netanyahu government, are they going to go all out war, as you're saying? Is that what you mean by decapitate? They're going to go all out yes. war? It's at least expected, both from the tone of Prime Minister Netanyahu's comments and the views of several analysts close in, that this will not be a limited operation. In the past, as we've seen, and news reports will easily confirm this, Israel goes in to take up the most visible sites, the sources, the arms depots, the terror tunnels through which they tunnel underground to get into Israel, and they do that. And then there's usually a call from the global community, so-called, to step down to back off, equivalents on both sides, etc. And Israel backs off and is quiet for a few months, maybe a year or two. It is becoming very evident that that's not what Israel plans to limit itself to this time. Um, more, it was, it's believed that more uh, Jews were killed in the first day since the end of the Holocaust. Um, there's about 700 confirmed murders from that first day, with more probably to come. Um, so, yeah, it is going to be most likely a ground incursion into Gaza, not just from the air. And uh, I will tell you this, that people in Israel who are reporting from inside and have themselves or their friends and family been called up to service are reporting that notwithstanding the conflicts, the powerful conflicts over the Israeli Supreme Court and reforms and the bitterness between the two parties, the country is just completely united that this has to stop. Remember, during the Supreme Court debates and protests, there were urgings, particularly from some of the Air Force members, not to report for reserve duty as a way of showing the government how powerfully they believe these proposed court reforms were bad. Well, that's off the window now. Not only is Israel getting 100% reporting in response for calls for duty to leave your home, report to your base and your squad and platoon. In fact, they're getting something like 110 or more percent, people who haven't yet been called up are showing up saying, tell me where my squad is. I need to get there and defend the homeland of my people. I can imagine that they are mustered up, that's for sure. Um, with respect to geopolitical implications, uh, let us start with the United States. Um, we're already seeing, of course, disgusting anti-Israeli demonstrations in New York City, say yesterday and also Saturday, the day of the massacre, we had pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Times Square, for instance. Um, and I hate to devolve by focusing on the least laudable amongst us, but there is a schism in the United States with people who seem to believe that there is some kind of a an equivalence between the two sides here. Um, even on my own listserv for my professional association, uh, American Psychoanalytic Association, they were they were middling and uh, they were uh, like chamberlains of their time, talking about uh, both sides and and parody of atrocities, uh, which I thought was just par for the course. So, what are you seeing politically, domestically in the United States as a result of of what's happened? Thank you. Overall. And let me just emphasize, as someone who has his bias in this, I am profoundly committed to the flourishing and sustaining of a, a viable Israel state, um, a state that respects all of its citizens, regardless of their faith, creed, or background, as they do. Um, 
there is a First Amendment right. And if these pro-Palestine folks want to march and use their First Amendment rights peacefully, they got a right to do so. This is America. I vehemently disagree with them. I think they're wildly deluded about the reality. But so are many other people, each of us think, in certain issues. They got a right to protest. But as to what's going on politically, certainly President Biden made a strong initial statement in support of Israel's right to defend itself, quote, full stop. It's good to hear. I think uh, a lot of folks agree with that, and it was the right thing. The question will be, as we've seen time and time again, and I think one of your recent postings alluded to this issue, and there's been some strong writing already about it, is how long will people support Israel's right to defend himself at the higher political echelons? It usually lasts a few days, and then the calls for equivalence and equal restraint come in. And oftentimes Israel is prevented from doing what, if it had been allowed to do it, would probably bring a more permanent peace, not just for Israelis, but for Palestinians. Because I think in the global discourse, in the liberal democracies, there's a very low focus and um, discourse space for what the Palestinian various leadership groups really do and how they treat their people. One of the reasons that may have contributed to the Hamas decision to go forward with the blessing of their Iranian paymasters is something that's been little reported in the U.S. There have been protests against the Gaza and Hamas regime across Gaza over this past summer. There are many people making clear under that brutal regime that they hate that regime. They want to be free of it. They have brought the country to a near economic collapse, just as Hezbollah has done in Lebanon. Without foreign aid, they're completely ungovernable. And so the idea that we should just back off and let these brutal regimes carry on, like Hamas in Gaza, like Hezbollah, which effectively controls Lebanon, in fact, we're consigning their ordinary citizens to a hellish life under a brutal dictatorship. So yeah, I happen to think that we've got a reality problem here in America with respect to what's really going on and who's really being hurt and why. Um, and we could talk at length, no time for this today on your uh, interview, but I think a lot of that comes out from some distortions in the discourse in the academy on the college and university campuses. Until we get the facts right, we can't really address this problem. No doubt. Um, I think it's only a matter of two weeks. I'm going to say two weeks until we start hearing uh, talk of proportionality uh, in the news. If you tune into MSNBC uh, or CNN, uh, they're going to be covering uh, Israel's response and uh, providing commentary on whether this is proportionately representative of the initial uh, intrusion into Israel. And um, boy, this speaks to a problem. I, I think we have not the stomach for war in the in the panopticon era of social media, where everything is displayed um, right in front of our eyes. Uh, but I don't know what Israel is supposed to do. What every Every so often, there are massacres across the border and then major massacres like this. At some point, they have to cut the head off the snake, wouldn't you say? I agree. I think there's a consensus across the political parties in Israel and among several folks, and I include myself in that, that say, we have demonstrated empirically the utter long-term failure of a partial response to Hamas that leaves them intact and just waits for the next set of massacres and mini holocausts. I think now this has woken enough people up in the chairs of decision-making in Israel that Hamas has just got to go. And uh, that's a very difficult thing because Israel, to its credit, is very committed to minimizing this brutal phrase, collateral damage. And as we all know, I'm sure you and your listeners know well, 
one of the tactics of Hamas, like Hezbollah, uh, like a lot of brutal governments and dictatorships, is to use their own citizens as human propaganda shields. Because right. Hamas always locates their missile launchers near playgrounds, schools, hospitals, residential, thickly set residential areas. So it's incredibly difficult for Israel to avoid killing innocent civilians when taking out the mechanisms of death that are killing their own civilians. So it's very difficult. This will happen. I don't think there's a person in Israel who wishes this had to happen, but they feel like there's no alternative at this point, that you can't keep doing this and expecting it to come back. And I'll add one point in that strategic analysis. Should we completely decapitate and eradicate Hamas or just cow them into being quiet for a few years? One of my many concerns on the broader regional geopolitical front is, you've probably seen this report, Iran is believed to be two weeks away from being able to make an explodable nuclear bomb. Two weeks. There's two weeks or two months. I didn't let's know just say, that. For the sake of act, not overstating, let's just say two months at most. I think it's two weeks, but I think it might be two months. Now, they don't yet have mm-hmm. a delivery system that can launch and deliver through a missile a nuclear bomb. But if they can make a nuclear bomb within two months, face it, they could also put it in the back of a flatbed truck like the many that pierced through the Israeli border a couple of days ago. The point is, if Iran reaches nuclear deliverable capacity by whatever means, imagine if they had that now. What Israel's in the West strategic calculation be? Can we lock off the head of Hamas or are they going to launch the bomb? Are they going to put a dirty bomb in a truck and render Jerusalem uninhabitable for the next thousand years? These are the problems we're approaching like an asymptote to a very difficult place none of us wants to be. If that's true, the question is, should Israel also be eliminating the threat from Hezbollah in the north. Hamas maybe has one-tenth or fewer of the missiles that Hezbollah has. Hamas launched between three and 5,000 missiles. They probably used up a lot of their arsenal, but not all. Hezbollah has around 150,000 or more missiles starting mm-hmm. Israel now. So we're in a really tough situation geopolitically. I don't know what the answer is, but I think the core bottom line is Israel has to reestablish deterrence to render those who would try to destroy it more fearful of trying to do so. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. Is there any risk, do you think, that the United States will end up at war with Iran? I think those are always the risks in the present geopolitical landscape. It's one that I think our American leaders want to avoid. I would want to avoid, if at all possible. Um, I think that's probably on the mind of our American leadership. And one of the streams of thought in this geopolitical discourse has been the wisdom or lack of wisdom. And America's strong tilt away from the Sunni Arab states and toward Iran and its axis of tyranny across the Middle East. Um, Eli Lake uh, and Barry Weiss's Free Press has written on that today or yesterday. Um, Leah Leibovitz in the excellent online magazine Tablet has written about that in the last few days. I would encourage folks to look them up. Very good discussions. Because 
and I would say of all the people who I find it very helpfully informed us on this is Michael Duran at the Hudson Institute. He has written repeatedly in Tablet and other online journals about how the American shift under President Obama and again under President Biden toward an entente with Iran that downgrades our Israeli and Saudi relationship in favor of an entente with Iran has been emboldening Hamas, the Palestinian groups, and Iran to be more aggressive. Um, and I'm not saying any endorsement or non-endorsement of any candidate, but when the Trump administration left office, their rough sanctions on Iran had led to the point where it was almost out of all foreign exchange reserves, which greatly crimps its wiggle room to obtain weapons, to finance terrorists right. abroad, etc. We all know that the JCPOA made no restrictions on Iran's support of terror throughout the region, which is one of their major levers of trying to control the Middle East, which is their goal. Biden came back and started loosening the sanctions on Iran in the hope of resurrecting some new version of the JCPOA nuclear production deal. And that has greatly increased Iran's available cash to promote terror, to support Hamas, to support Palestinian Islamic Jihad, to support Hezbollah. And we've seen them growing more aggressive even before this invasion by Hamas. Um, it is very, very problematic. And lastly, as we all saw, $6 billion was just unfrozen and frozen for counter-terror reasons, Iranian funds held in South Korea. By the way, it's important to note, the deal America hammered out with Iran to pay him $6 billion to release those five or so hostages, the funds are in the custody of Doha, Qatar, the Qatari leadership. And it's been said by the administration, but it's only going to go for hospitals and schools and things like that. Well, even if it does, that frees up that otherwise hospital school money to go into terror promotion. But what's worse, Qatar, who is going to manage the dispersion of those funds, Qatar is the host of the Hamas leadership. Qatar is a very strong ally of the Muslim Brotherhood, of which Hamas is a member. And so the idea that we can trustworthily rely on Doha to handle those funds being given to Iran, all these things have enriched Iran's confidence, its willingness to be aggressive, and its willingness to launch operations like this war on Israel. So it, I think there needs to be a reckoning in Washington that has not yet happened. You have been so engrossed in the details of this broad theater. Uh, this is excellent to have you on, Hank. Um, it would seem to me that one of the mistakes that Biden and former President Obama and generally the Democrat Party makes in their relationship with the <coughs> Middle Eastern states and countries is that they assume that something other than hardened strength will be respected. But my observation is that when they offer treatises and entents, as you say, to these countries, those entents are perceived as weakness, not as olive branches. I think you're right. I think you're spot on. There's a wonderful book by the geopolitical writer Lee Smith, who also writes for Tablet Magazine and others. And lately, he's been writing more on domestic politics at the national level. But before then, his sort of beat was the Middle East. And he wrote a book called The Strong Horse, which says exactly what you said. That, And I don't think it's anything particular to the Middle East only. <clears throat> I think the category to which he's referring are autocratic, dictatorial-style regimes that don't play by what, in Anglo-American speak, we call the Marcus of Queensbury rules. You know, fair play, right. 
you know, shake hands after the match. Well done, mate, even though you crushed us or we crushed you. There's a whole set of ethics which can easily be mocked, as I hope I didn't mock too much in my comments there, of fair play in the big places where it counts, the rules of war, Geneva Conventions, things like that. And that comes from a whole cultural mindset that is simply not bought into or adhered to by these dictatorial and autocratic regimes. When you're dealing with liberal democracies across a divide, a concession is often met with, well, I may not agree with you, but I appreciate that. Maybe I can offer something different. It's a negotiation in good faith. When you're dealing with Russia, China, with Iran, which are the new access of the new Cold War, you don't get that response. You're exactly right. I think in many cases they view our efforts at conciliation as signs of weakness, and it emboldens them. And we see this pattern playing out over and over. And so what's interesting is some of the folks in the academy who take this view, no, 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 we have to make more concessions to China. We have to be sensitive to their understandings. We have to make more offers to bring them in the fold. They are the ones who tend to talk about we need to understand diversity. We need to be welcoming of different mindsets. Inclusive, right. They have actually no understanding of the dictatorial autocratic mindset with which we're dealing and how these things don't work in those kinds of situations. And I think that's been a huge problem in the Biden-Obama-Iran policy. That regime cannot be brought into the community of law-abiding nations. It never will with that leadership. And we need to deal with that as a fact. How do you think that a Trump administration would be responding differently than the Biden administration is currently if this were to happen under Trump's administrative oversight? I think the best evidence of that is what they did with respect to Iran and the Middle East. The Trump administration uh, ratcheted up strong sanctions against Iran, which, as we noted, um, led to their dwindling foreign exchange reserves, which weakened them. And they also did something of great significance. The leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, the IRCG, was Qassam Soleimani. And the Trump administration ordered the drone strike that killed him. That was a serious message to Iran, which, as some folks may recall, Iran had been testing our resolve. They were flying missiles toward a Saudi um, refining plant. They were attacking American soldiers in Iraq, and this was known by the Trump administration as a test by a dictatorial regime, which is committed to upending the American-based, rules-based world order. So he took out Soleimani, he ramped up the sanctions, and Iran was in a much less threatening place, I believe, as a result. My guess is that he would restore that kind of policy. My guess is he would go back to the Abraham Accords, which his administration sponsored and successfully carried out, which folks need to remember. Yes, there was a peace treaty with Egypt, but it was a very cold peace. Egyptian media, at least until recently, still was full of Nazified anti-Semitic propaganda, hating Israel. Literally, one of the top-selling single songs in Egyptian history, I think it's the 1980s and 90s, was a song titled, I Hate Israel. So 5 million copies in Egypt. All right, so that was a cold peace. Same thing with Jordan. The Abraham Accords is the first public, visible, warm peace between Israel and Arab countries. The UAE has set up an Abraham Accord Center with synagogues, Christian churches, mosques, and saying, we are all brothers under Abraham and under God. This is a, magnificent, a huge breakthrough that is often not credited. 
And it was part of the shift in the Middle East toward a Sunni-Israeli alliance against the threat of Iran, which seeks Middle Eastern hegemony. It wasn't all idealism. It was also hardcore geopolitics to protect that part of the Middle East against Iran's bid to take it over. When the Biden administration came in, they reversed Trump's pro-Abraham Accords policies. Two things they did. <clears throat> there are reports that State Department employees were actually directed initially in 2017, uh, I'm sorry, 2021 not to use the word Abraham Accords, just talk about the normalization agreements. Number two, under the Abraham Accords as negotiated, there was a multilateral investment fund within with funds provided by the U.S. to encourage UAE-Israeli, joint Arab-Israeli investments in infrastructure and research and development. The U.S. under Biden cut out our funding of that. Why you would want to undermine the Abraham Accords is a complete mystery to me, but I think it had to do with their effort to say no. Our real partner over there for bringing stability to the region is Iran. And the only way Iran's going to work with us if we start backing out of the Abraham Accords Sunni uh, alliance framework. So, yeah, Trump would probably revive the Abraham Accords, bring a Saudi Arabia into the fold with Israel, which would be a huge change for the world as well as the Middle East. And he would be tough on Iran. What else he'd do, I can't say, but his past behavior makes clear that he would do those things. He's being blamed by some news outlets as having encouraged the Netanyahu government to go for what they call a maximalist Israel policy, and that that somehow uh, wound down uh, relationships with Palestine. I see that as a baseless argument and simply a doubling back on anything that is Trump. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, unfortunately... I mean, these phrases tend to be loaded, and I don't mean to be overly um, to one political side or the other, but there is this phenomenon they call Trump derangement syndrome, that when people think of Trump, they just start thinking that whatever's bad is going on must be somehow tied to the guy. As admitted, he, he did some things that, at least in the Middle East, were certainly very auspiciously favorable policies. He has some character flaws that are visible for all to see. He's a very controversial guy. We all know that. Um, but this idea that somehow Trump is like the guy in the Wizard of Oz pulling the levers behind the face of world affairs. No, is, Israel is going to do what Israel is going to do for its national survival. They don't need Trump to tell them to ramp up or ramp down their work. They'll decide this on their own, regardless of what an American politician says, which you've seen over and over. And I'd say in this, Walter Russell Meade, um, the great geopolitics writer who has a weekly column in the Wall Street Journal, his new book, The Ark of the Covenant, goes very far in explaining how Americans overstate what we can do vis-a-vis -vis Israel and vice versa. Israel does what it's got to do for survival, and I think that's true here. Um, and as far as Bibi Netanyahu and the Palestinians, the dilemma is, and I've recently published both some reports for an NGO and some op-eds on this, the Western world, led by Americans, try again and again and again, actually going back to 1937, when Britain was the mandatory League of Nations partner overseeing the Middle East, have tried to establish the so-called two-state solution. In my writings, I've identified nine different instances between 1937 and 2017, the year of the Trump offer, when the Western world, led by the U.S. or England, said, we want you to have two states. Israel will have a state here, right next to you on the land Israel would love to have. You love a Palestinian state. They've either tried to offer a specific plan or invited the Palestinians into negotiations to have a state at the end of the negotiations. 
every time the Palestinian leadership from 1937 to the present has basically given the West the middle finger in Israel and said, no, we don't want that. And oftentimes, in several other things, it started a terror war against Israel. The jig is up. The Palestinian leadership has made clear by their conduct and statements, they don't want two states. They want to destroy Israel and have a Palestinian state after they kick all the Jews out of there to God knows where. So this idea that Bibi somehow has harmed relations with the Palestinians is a complete misnomer. He, like every prime minister, has tried to deal with them, and they just won't deal. And it's sad, and it's tragic, and the Palestinian people suffer. But um, the idea that Trump or Bibi, if it was somebody different or somebody quotes nice, like Obama or Biden, Palestinians still won't deal because they want to destroy Israel. And that's sad. That's the reality. It's really striking to me. Anytime I hear debates and discussions about uh, which side has more of a moral conundrum and, and so forth between Palestine and Israel, one country says it wants to eradicate the other country. If you start from that basis, the discussion's over. There is no moral equivalence between Israel and Palestine, period. One culture says it wants to eradicate the other. One culture says it wants to commit genocide against the other, period. And so I don't know how in America we somehow have this confusion. Um, something I've been thinking about recently is how narcissism uh, displays itself in our modern politics. Of course, many people are wondering about that. And as I was observing my own professional listserv uh, yesterday, and there are, there are meanderings and middlings and uh, middle way routes uh, through the discussion of this atrocity, it occurred to me that many professionals, especially many academics, believe that their equanimity somehow will transcend the givenness of the tragedies of reality. As if, if we think of equivalence between the two sides and we withhold any kind of, quote, all or none thinking, unquote, and so forth, and we don't pick a side, that that somehow uh, erases the sheer tragedy of the reality that's upon us. And it doesn't. We had people come in, and for anybody who's listening who has not tuned into some of the news stories and the footage, you really ought to, because we have videos of women's naked, raped bodies murdered, thrown in the back of pickup trucks, paraded around Gaza. We have uh, many people uh, who have been absolutely bludgeoned, assaulted. We have old women being assaulted, mothers with redhead babies in their arms assaulted. I mean, this was a tragedy. This was a complete vile intrusion into humanity. And I, I, I'm also bothered by the fact that many news outlets and many uh, commentaries call this senseless. Well, it wasn't senseless. Uh -huh. The sense was, well, violence against Israel, period. It, to call it senseless, I think, also removes anybody from responding in, a, in an ethical way that has gravity to it. You know, it's the sort of Chamberlain uh, uh, saga of our time. And I don't know about you, Hank, but I'd rather be Churchill than Chamberlain. Oh, I, uh, it's on the floor, my, uh, my framed photo of Churchill that I got at a flea market several years ago and kept in my office always near me during my years with the Justice Department. Um, and what I think makes Churchill relevant to what you're saying is that if you listen to his World War II speeches to the British people before America got in the war, when I think that Britain's experience against the Nazi conquest of Europe is not entirely 
different than Israel's experience in the face of the Iranian encirclement of the Middle East today. Um, he never whitewashed the truth. He told his people how desperate the situation was, which a lot of politicians don't do. As you say, people don't want to deal with reality. But in each of the speeches, he would explain why, despite that, we will overcome. And it's, it really was masterful political leadership of, of really one of the greatest um, public leadership roles of a country in such danger that I've ever witnessed, and it's extraordinary. And as to your point about there's a degree of narcissism the folks are hoping, it's sort of a hope that our good intentions can be, will alone suffice to change the behavior of these regimes that are so utterly different from the fair play, Western rules-driven order. And again, it doesn't have to do with ethnicity or genetics. It's just culture. And it's... It's unfortunate that the Middle East happens to be driven in this direction, but that's not just a matter of happenstance. I'm going to digress a little bit, if I may, and I recognize time is short. But I think that what's not understood about the Middle East is how, unfortunately, this, and this is my book, War on Hate, goes into this in several chapters. Why did the Middle East become the locus of so much terrorist and genocidal, oh, thank you, violence? And the history has to do with... Within Islam, as within all major religious systems, there's always been a debate between sort of the softer liners and the hard liners, and each has its place. But a very hard, hard line went out between the 9th and 11th centuries in uh, the Islamic world. There was, in the 9th through 11th centuries, a very ecumenical form of Islam that for one caliph's brief spell became the established religion of the Abbasid Empire based in Baghdad around the years, year 1000. And they established a house of wisdom where they would bring in Zoroastrians, Jews, Christians to debate with Muslims. The leader of the house of wisdom was a man who had written several books. He was like a medieval physician and scientist who said, we should never fear truth no matter where it comes from, whatever the source or religion or background of the person. It's like listening to an American college president talk about open-minded thinking today. This was at the heart of Islam. But that version of Islam was crushed within the next 150 years by another version called the Asherite version, to the point where the Asherites said, we're going to ban philosophy books because they invite people to question, and questioning breeds uh, uh, disloyalty to the faith. I'm forgetting the exact word we use when someone is a, 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 makes apostates. And so Islam suffered a terrible defeat, but at the same time that Medieval Christianity and medieval Judaism were bringing Aristotle and some of those doctrines into their face. And obviously, it took another thousand years till we reached the age of true ecumenical religion in the modern world. But Islam suffered terribly by that uh, lost battle. And then when you get to the 20th century, the other very little known fact about the Middle East is how much exogenous actors push them in a more totalitarian direction. World War I, Germany under the Kaiser sent propagandists to the Middle East to encourage the Middle East to rise up in jihad against their French and British colonial masters. It was a geopolitical tactic to help Germany win World War I, but it instilled in there a further, almost like, cultural gene that paired with the radical Islam that had prevailed a thousand years before. And as if that wasn't bad enough, in World War II, Hitler formed an alliance with the then leader of the rising self-identified Palestinian people against uh, the Jews moving in. 
and the leader of the Palestinian National Movement, Hajimin al-Husseini, from the 1920s through the 19, late 1940s. He formed a public alliance with Hitler in 1941, where Hitler said, my armies in North Africa are coming east under General Rommel. They're going to conquer the whole Middle East. You, Hajimin al-Husseini, leader of the Palestinian people, will be my installed leader. And you and I will build concentration camps in Palestine and burn every last Jew to bits. This is the founding of the Palestinian National Movement. It's never been denazified. And that's why I'd encourage your readers to read books like two German historians wrote this book, Nazi Palestine. It's a stunning documentation of that fact. Barry Rubin and others have written Nazis, Islamists, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. My point is that sadly, what you're seeing in Iran, what you're seeing in Hamas, and what you see in the propaganda of the Palestinian Authority are the legacy of a merger between radical jihadism and Nazi ideology that has never been cleaned out. That's why we can't play by the rules of the game of Fandress and negotiate peace with these folks. They need to be Nazified. It's a psychopathic culture in that sense. That's not all it is, but that is one thing that it is. And I think that the, um, the, the general truism, which is that you cannot uh, argue with a tiger while your head is in its mouth, uh, I think that's another Churchill phrase, comes into play here. And I think the Netanyahu government is likely going to make sure that Israel is nowhere near the mouth of Palestine going forward. And this is going to be really something to observe. Uh, in the next few weeks, and I, I assume months. Now, in 2008, uh, the Obama administration, along with Joe Biden, were, as far as I know, publicly supportive of Israel. But towards the end of, of that conflict, uh, uh, messaged to, to them uh, that they needed to kind of stop the skirmish because they thought it had gone far enough. They had, you know, uh, uh, bloodied up, uh, you know, their opponents enough, and that they've sent a message. I don't think that if that message is handed down from the White House now or anytime soon, I don't think it's going to be heeded. And so at some point, there's going to be a, a decoupling between the perceived public unity between Israel and the administration, I would assume. Um, the Biden administration sent an aircraft carrier and fleet into the Gulf as a show of support, I assume, uh, for geopolitical purposes and geomilitary purposes to show China that if it moves on Taiwan, that we'll do the same there. Um, what can you say about what is happening in Russia and China in their observation of what we're going to do now with our allies, Israel? I think you hit exactly on the third and largest level of this conflict's significance. As I, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I see it as three levels. There's the immediate crisis of Hamas's invasion of Israel, and that has to be dealt with. It's all hands on that. Get that out of there. Free the hostages. Stop Hamas, etc. That's level one. Level two is what's going on in terms of this in the geopolitics of the Middle East, which we've talked about. This is part of Iran's bid for hegemony over the Middle East, which is doing, when you think about it, they got the Houthis in Yemen. They've got the Syrian regime under their heel. They've got Hezbollah in Lebanon. They've got both Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad in Gaza. And they've been infiltrating those groups into the West Bank uh, against the Palestinian Authority, etc. Now you touch on the third level, which is this isn't just a regional matter. This is part of a new Cold War. I'm sure you're familiar with the historian Neil Ferguson, um, who's just a prolific and extraordinary writer and analyst of history and geopolitics. He, along with um, 
forgetting the name of the other gentleman. There are a few historians now saying, we are in Cold War II. Let's just face that reality. Before the Olympics, uh, there, there was uh, the chi in China, there was a meeting between um, the leader of China and Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. And it was understood that they made clear their united effort to undermine the rules-based Western liberal international order. And uh, it was not long after that that Russia invaded Ukraine. And China has been rattling the sabers about Taiwan evermore um, and has been threatening Taiwanese airspace. And Iran has joined in that alliance. It's now, there was a Wall Street Journal piece about three or four weeks ago talking about the new China-Russia-Iran alliance, which is the source of the new Cold War, um, because the three of them are hung each other. Iran has been building drones, which Russia was deploying in Ukraine. Um, Russia and China are supportive of each other, undermining the West with the Ukraine invasion, hopefully weakening the West for a Taiwan invasion. These things all tie together. So I agree with you. I think that the U.S. putting parts of the Sixth Fleet closer to uh, the Israel uh, Israel's territorial waters amid this is a nice gesture. My concern is that in trying to rebuild deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Iran, China, and Russia, we're doing some decent stuff with Ukraine. There's a debate about whether we're doing enough. We have really undermined deterrence with Iran and with the Palestinian groups by our policies, as we've discussed. And as to China, I think there, it is true in most folks' view that what we do in Ukraine is being watched closely by Xi Jinping in China. But he's also watching whether we're going to rebuild our weapon stocks, the HIMARS missiles, the artillery. To deter China, we both have to right. stand up for Ukraine, stand against Iran, and keep our weapon stocks up. That's key. Because it basically is, with these leaders, they need to know that if they try to do the things we darn well don't want them to do, they'll upset the world order. It's going to hurt them more than they ever were willing to bear. And that's why American deterrence matters. We've sacrificed it with Iran in the Middle East to some degree. We've got to rebuild it. Israel has now taken the lead trying to rebuild that from its perspective. We should be more tightly, I think, more tightly with and behind Israel in the weeks to come and not telling them to back off. You'll note, by the way, uh, even last night, Secretary of State Blinken did issue a tweet on X in which he referred to his discussions with the Turkish foreign minister. And he said something about how he supports or encourages the Turkish foreign minister's call for there to be a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. So we've already slipped into the wrong pathway there. That's um, so unrealistic, the idea that Israel is supposed to just say, okay, worst atrocity in 50 years since Yom Kippur and Egypt and Syria tried to assault us, but we'll just, you, you know, we'll deescalate. It's so yeah. naive, completely naive. And from Blinken, who is an empty suit, in my opinion, I, I'm going to make a prediction here. Um, I think that if Joe Biden is reelected, that China is going to move on Taiwan within his second administration. What do you think about I, that, Hank? I am tremendously fearful of that very thing. Um, and what I think is insufficiently known is Taiwan is now the world capital of the semiconductor industry, the advanced semiconductor industry. Right. Um, we have lots of plants here and in Europe, but the world's best semiconductors are now made by Taiwan Semiconductor in Taiwan. And if China gets that, they will have the most advanced supercomputers and will be cut out of that flow. Yes, the West and its ingenuity and its market will eventually 
rebuild that capacity. But in the interim, it's going to be long and painful. And its effect on uh, the prosperity of the Western democracies. Taiwan is another linchpin uh, in the Western's um, economic and technological edge. So I am very fearful of that. And I think China also has the incentive to move sooner rather than later. If you believe, as some analysts say, that China's getting close to peak power now, their um, financial situation is, is at risk because their leading real estate company is vastly overleveraged and are starting to risk a slide into bankruptcy. Um, their economic growth rate is slower. They'll still be strong, but they have issues. And because of the one-child policy, they don't have enough young potential workers coming up to replace the ones retiring. The figure I just heard recently was there are something like 300,000, 300 million fewer workers coming up in the prior generation and 200 million uh, folks in China are about to retire. In other words, they're, they're aging as a country without the replacements from below. Which is so their thirst for some sort of external economic uh, accelerant is high. Their eyes yeah. are very much on Taiwan, is what you're saying. Yeah, and their belief that we might not be have another chance for this as time goes by and we get weaker. At the same time that they look at America, which looks weak now, too, compared to where it was four or five years ago. So, yeah, you've got a lot of these factors out there. Deterrence on the behalf of the West has been compromised. And I think I'm not saying that Hamas made this move because of what's going on with the American budget deficit. No, I'm not going there. <laughs> but I think that the perception that the West is not as robust as it was five, seven years ago, I think, is there. And we've done nothing but enable Iran to extend its terrorist reach and invest in it in a way we never should have after 2017. Hank, I want to close out by asking you, do you have family and friends in Israel right now, and are they okay? Oh, thanks so much for asking. Um, my brother-in-law and his family are just outside Jerusalem, and uh, they actually made the Aliyah, made the move about four or five years ago. Um, they're all okay. We were on the phone with them yesterday. They had, as of yesterday, five times the air raid sirens went off, and they went every, every house in Israel has a safe room, a place that it's much harder for a missile or shrapnel to penetrate. You know, think of these things. This is the way Israel lives. When you see the headlines that say only 400 Israelis have died, but 1,500 Palestinians have died, well, that's because Israel goes to extraordinary lengths to protect its civilians. If Israel acted like the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, who really don't give a damn about the lives of their civilians, and in some ways hope that more civilians would be killed for their propaganda war against Israel, if they had the same habitations, there'd be thousands and thousands of Israelis killed. There are fewer deaths because of Israel's extraordinary efforts of humanitarian protection. Um, so they're okay, thank God. What we're all worried about is whether Hezbollah is going to jump into this conflict or not. That's right, whether a second front question. is going to open up. And if it does, it's going to escalate this conflict exponentially. That's right. And how many Iron Dome missiles are left? You know, our, our brother-in-law tells us, no, you can hear the Iron Domes going off. You can hear the cracks in the air. We're safe. But um, if Hezbollah gets in, it's a whole new ball game. No one knows where that's going. Let's pray and hope things don't go there. Hank Capel, author of The War on Hate, an excellent book that I recommend everyone read. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we'll um, talk again when this conflict is, well, this war is going down or de-escalating. And, and perhaps I'll call on you if you're, 
if you're willing to come back on in a pinch uh, like you were today to, to give us more information about what's happening. Oh, of course. Thanks so much, Lucas. It's an honor as always, and God bless to you.